this is Spill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights spill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. Television today is such a different animal than when I was a kid. Don't get me wrong, I like being able to sit down and watch an entire show when I want and how I want to. I didn't start watching The Office when it was broadcasted, so I flew through the whole Pam and Jim arc without anticipation or anything near what people were experiencing when they had to wait for it week to week. It was awesome, though. I watched Friends for the first time just a couple of years ago, and it took maybe a week to get through all of it. Uh, Same thing with Parks and Rec, um, a few of the first series of Game of Thrones, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Community, Always Sunny in Philadelphia... Although that one, man, that one probably needed the old format, one week at a, or one episode a week. I remember when I first started watching that one, I just could not get past two episodes at a time because they're just absolutely terrible people. And I really still hate Dennis. A lot. Uh, even when he was in AP Bio, there's just something about that guy. It's a mark of a good actor, though, because I really do hate him. Uh, anyway, Game of Thrones actually highlights kind of the point I want to make here. At least for the first uh, last few seasons, it was still kind of a television-watching event. We built nights around the show. Uh, the final episode, as much of a letdown as it was, you know, hashtag no one wins the throne for the win here, uh, was a big deal for my friend group. We made a pork-stuffed Wellington dragon egg. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Uh, we had signature cocktails. We had one called the White Walker and another called Three-Eyed Raven. We even had a betting pool. No money was involved, but, you know, for bragging rights. It was based on who would live and who would die in the final season and in which episode all of that went down. But it was something for us to look forward to week to week. And that's how TV really was for us growing up. Friday nights, once school was done and you got home and you didn't have to stress about homework or anything else for at least a day or two since you could put it off. I mean, there is a reason why most of us still hate Sundays, right? Because it is the worst day of the week, especially as teachers. But you sat down on the couch after family dinner and everyone watched the TGIF lineup that was on ABC at the time. Full House, Family Matters, Dinosaurs, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Step by Step, oh, my favorite, Boy Meets World. It was a weekly event. Those shows still hold such an important cultural place for my generation, um, as does the event that surrounded them. When you went back to school on Monday, there was something to talk about and you had to watch or everyone would spoil it for you. And you anticipated that evening, too. The TJIF label was not a kitschy accident. Thank God it's Friday. And even without the television lineup or an event like that, we still live by that notion. I know I even find myself falling to it quite often, despite the fact that I have this discussion with my students several times a year. So many workdays go by, so many school days, where we stare at the clock and count down the minutes. We go so far as to count down days to the break, days to summer, to our vacation time, whatever it happens to be, and we measure out our lives in this period of, like, holding and waiting. And while I may be present in my work environment, working hard, putting my time into it, there's still even just a fraction of me that's thinking forward to the next thing. Some of that kind of thinking is useless, good, and necessary in a way, and it's almost impossible to do otherwise. It's weird that our consciousness makes us, in a way, kind of timeless. We can exist in the moment, physically present, but also mentally in the past and future simultaneously. We're always time-traveling, in a sense. Our concern is when we happen to get stuck, like when your mom told you not to do that weird thing with your eyes or your face, when you would get permanently stuck like that, which wasn't ever true, by the way. 
but we've met plenty of characters in our reading journey that have escaped the issues of time, of presence. When we teach Gatsby to our juniors, we can't help but discuss that notion, the notion of being constantly pushed backward in time. The famous last scene after the funeral when Nick is standing on the bank of the Sound contemplating his whole situation. Most of the Big Shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferryboat across the Sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in the vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we'll run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. To live in the past obviously arrests forward progress, but so does living in the future, especially if the idealist vision doesn't come. I've seen so many students in the past decade who put all their plans and all their visions for themselves into getting into that one particular school, only to be crushed by rejection. So then you have to create a new vision, or just die under the weight of reality. No plan Bs, no alternatives, no adaptability. I mean... This comes with not being taught how to fail, which has become kind of an endemic problem of education these days. But I digress. So how do we deal with living, if we have to be careful about how tenuously we place ourselves in past, present, and future? Rampion offers a solution in his famous rant on page 300 of Point Counterpoint. Of course they don't. They live as idiots and machines all the time, at work and in their leisure like idiots and machines, but imagining they're living like civilized humans, even like gods. The first thing to do is to make them admit that they're idiots and machines during working hours. Our civilization being what it is, that's what you have to say to them. You've got to do it, otherwise the whole fabric of our world will fall to bits and we'll all starve. Do the job then, idiotically and mechanically, and spend your leisure hours in being a real, complete man or woman, as the case may be. Don't mix the two lives together. Keep the bulkheads watertight between them. The genuine life, human life in your leisure hours is the real thing. The other is just a dirty job that's got to be done. And never forget that it is dirty, and except insofar as it keeps you fed and society intact, utterly unimportant, utterly irrelevant to the real human life. Don't be deceived by the canting rogues who talk of the sanctity of labor and the Christian service that businessmen do their fellows. It's all lies. Your work's just a nasty, dirty job that's made unfortunately necessary by the folly of your ancestors. They piled up a mountain of garbage and you've got to go on digging it away for fear it might stink you to death, digged for dear life, while cursing the memory of the maniacs who made all the dirty work for you to do. But don't try to cheer yourself up by pretending the nasty mechanical job is a noble one. It isn't. 
Lower your humanity to the level of the dirty work. If you believe in business as service and the sanctity of labor, you'll merely turn yourself into a mechanical idiot for 24 hours out of the 24. Admit it's dirty, hold your nose, and do it for 8 hours, and then concentrate on being a real human being in your leisure. A real, complete human being. Not a newspaper reader, not a jazzer, not a radio fan. The industrialists who purvey standardized ready-made amusements to the masses are doing their best to make you as much of a mechanical imbecile in your leisure as in your work hours of work. But don't let them. Make the effort of being human. That's what you've got to say to people. That's the lesson you've got to teach the young. You've got to persuade everybody that all this grand industrial civilization is just a bad smell and that the real significant life can only be lived apart from it. It'll be a very long time before decent living and industrial smell can be reconciled. Perhaps, indeed, they're reconcilable. It remains to be seen. In the meantime, at any rate, we must shovel the garbage and bear the smell stoically, and in the intervals try to lead the real human life. Rampion, the character who has been preaching holistic living and not ignoring a fundamental part of your existence, living both the heart and head and bowels and loins the spirit, all of it. But no, God forbid you live your existence at work. His argument, in essence, suggests that industrialism, science, progress, and the rest of it have removed the human element from work. To an extent, he isn't wrong. The factory model certainly has accelerated some of those effects. No longer does the person have a product that is wholly theirs. Unlike the cobbler and carpenters of prior centuries, where the labor ended in a completed object that was indicative of your skill and the years of learning and refining of your craft, the progress of the industrial model leaves us disconnected from the work. In 1955, a German humanistic philosopher and critic of the psychoanalytic techniques of Freud named Eric Fromm published a work called The Sane Society, which is also deeply critical of many of the same modern industrial complexes as Rampion has here in Point Counterpoint. In a few sections from the work, this is what he has to say. Modern industrial society, for instance, could not have attained its ends had it not harnessed the energy of free men for work in an unprecedented degree. Man had to be molded into a person who was eager to spend most of his energy for the purpose of work, who acquired discipline, particularly orderliness and punctuality, to a degree unknown in most other cultures. It would not have sufficed if each individual had made up his mind consciously every day that he wanted to work, to be on time, etc., since any such conscious deliberation would lead him many more exceptions than the smooth functioning of society can afford. Nor would threat of force have sufficed as a motive, since the highly differentiated tasks in a modern industrial society can in the long run only be the work of free men and not of forced labor. The necessity for work, for punctuality and orderliness, had to be transformed into an inner drive for these aims. This means the society had to produce a social character in which these strivings were inherent. Science, business, politics have lost all foundations and proportions which make sense humanly. We live in figures and abstractions. Since nothing is concrete, nothing is real. Everything is possible, factually and morally. Science fiction is not different from science fact. Nightmares and dreams from the events of next year. Man has been thrown out from any definite place whence he can overlook and manage his life and the life of society. He is driven faster and faster by the forces which originally were created by him. In this wild world, he thinks, figures, busy with abstractions more and more remote from concrete life. Alienation as we find it in modern society is almost total. 
It pervades the relationship of man to his work, to the things he consumes, to the state, to his fellow man, and to himself. Man has created a world of man-made things as it never existed before. He has constructed a complicated social machine to administer the technical machine he built. Yet this whole creation of his stands over and above him. He does not feel himself as a creator and center, but as the servant of a golem which his hands have built. The more powerful and gigantic the forces are which he unleashes, the more powerless he feels himself as a human being. He confronts himself with his own forces embodied in things he has created, alienated from himself. He is owned by his own creations and has lost ownership of himself. He has built a golden calf and says, There are your gods who have brought you out of Egypt. What happens to the worker? To put in the words of a thoughtful and thorough observer of the industrial scene, in industry the person becomes an economic atom that dances to the tune of atomistic management. Your place is just here, you will sit in this fashion, your arms will move x inches in a course of y radius, and the time of movement will be .000 minutes. Work is becoming more repetitive and thoughtless as the planners, the micromotionists, and the scientific managers further strip the worker of his right to think and move freely. Life is being denied. Need to control, creativeness, curiosity, and independent thought are being balked. And the result... The inevitable result is flight or fight on the part of the worker, apathy or destructiveness, psychic regression. As Frum says, the dangers for humanity in the past lie in being forced into slavery, but he also recognizes that slavery hasn't simply changed forms and has subsisted under the guise of modern capital. In the future, as he claims, men become robots. This is essentially, though, what Rampion is calling for people to be. As he says, idiots and machines, for eight hours a day, we push off our humanity, we leave ourselves at home, we become sewing machines, calculators, task completers, and then go home and be us. But I have to ask, if we can't be humans during the largest part of our day, how can we possibly know how to be humans in those few hours of our mornings and evenings? It would be really hard to flip that switch, I would think. We're beings of habit, of pattern. If a substantial chunk of our consecutive hours are spent being one thing, I don't know how we're capable of flipping it off. So if we must be machines in order to work, then I would imagine we would be machines at home as well. This is the modern TGIF sentiment. Get through your work. Enjoy your weekend. Rinse, repeat. Go to school, get through it. Go home, do your homework, maybe. Eat dinner, take a few minutes or hours to yourself, go to sleep, wake up, do it again. Graduate. Yay! Go to college, slightly more flexibility, but ultimately you find the routine there as well. Wait for the weekends, wait for summer, wait for graduation, yay! Get a job, go back to the grind for real this time, but even more enslaved to it in the sake of money to eat and live and go anywhere with all those few spare weeks that you have for vacation, unless you get sick and you have to pay for medical care, which of course now you can't leave your job because that's helping you with the medical care, so you're basically enslaved to your job for more than just livelihood, but also for basic health, basic life. So you do this for 25-30 years and hope to save up enough so you can enjoy the cool trips that you go in places, buy the house that you want to invest your future in and the generations of children and grandchildren, and then you go to retirement. Yay! No longer a slave to the system or a job or anything like that. Well, now you can travel, right? Live. Well, yeah, unless you didn't make enough 
and a disaster happens that wipes out your 401k or the housing market crashes and all of a sudden you're a slave to the social security system that gives you a fixed number of month-to-month money may not fluctuate really readily with the market and then all of a sudden what's left? Live, right? Finally in your retirement? To die? Is Rampion's projection all that feasible? Is it a good idea to waste, essentially, that eight hours a day? Even during a normal school year, that's eight hours a day times 182 school days. So let's do some basic math. That's 1,456 hours, not counting homework or extra activities or anything like that. Or for me, this would be, you know, lesson planning and grading and summers of trying to figure out what I'm doing next year or the curriculum setting up and new skills or anything in terms of trying to implement new strategy. So that's about 33-ish percent of the school year. 17% of the whole year as a whole. That's definitely substantial. And like I said, that's not really counting all of the extra stuff. And it's pretty substantial for working adults outside of education, too. Although, let's be real, most of us work those hours somewhere, I promise. And we aren't really paid for those either. So, let's say we take off weekends and vacation time and maybe some sick time and holidays. And you're looking at more about 1,900 hours or so. And that's about 20% of a year of being idiots and machines. And let's not forget you're sleeping a good portion of that extra hour, too. So let's recalculate. If you get the recommended 8 hours of sleep a day, that means you're awake about 5,840 hours of your year. And if you're spending 8 hours of work days as an idiot and a machine in those waking hours, you're now looking at about 33% of your conscious living time as a robot, purposefully. And that's the bare minimum of work time. I'm not accounting for your commute or getting ready for work or overtime or anything like that. That's pretty substantial. Side note to students, at bare minimum commitment from you, that's half your conscious hours during the school year. And that's not counting homework. But that also assumes you're getting eight hours of sleep and I can't attest to your sleep patterns. Is that really what we want? To be us, real humans, conscious, alive, and not just existing as a drone to complete tasks and TGIF for a third to half our living. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I hate that, actually. (laughs) So what's the alternative, then? In 1942, Albert Camus outlined something of a response to this in a famous essay called The Myth of Sisyphus. He takes the Greek myth of Sisyphus, and in particular his punishment, and fleshes out his philosophy absurdist existentialism over it. There are a couple of versions of Sisyphus' story, some different ways that he cheats death, none of which really actually connect meaningfully to the punishment, which is half the point itself. When Sisyphus does die, the gods punish him with an unceasing task of rolling a boulder up a hill, which then falls down the other side. And through the magic of mythology, don't tell me he can stop, he can't, he is then compelled to walk back down only to force the boulder back up again over and over and over and over and over again for all eternity. The task never completes. He never rests. It never ends. There's no hope of completion. There's no accomplishment. Tireless, meaningless, useless, unending work. There is no product. Sound familiar? Like Camus says, the workman of today's works every day in his life at the same tasks and his fate is no less absurd. This is us. Or at least many of us, if we interpret work that way. Unlike the cobbler or the carpenter who succeeds at having a product that stands for their hard work and represents their creativity and their energy and output, many just simply don't have the tangible work to show for their work. And this is an increasing issue. 
Many people work in such abstract ways now that it's hard to pinpoint what it is that they do or create. In Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, there's a quick little conversation in there that makes reference to this too. Willie, in one of his reimaginings of the past, is talking to his ghost brother and trying to boast him about his success. Of course, Willie's completely inept and feels that kind of thing in relation to his rich and successful brother. So in a dream, he's trying desperately to prove himself. So he talks about his boys and the success of selling, because he's a salesman, and Ghost Ben asks a poignant question. What are you building? Lay your hands on it. Where is it? Which honestly is a question worthy of asking a lot of people today. I'm a teacher. My product is incredibly abstract. I don't even think I'm really allowed to lay claim to it. My students are free and conscious autonomous beings. I may influence certain things, maybe, positively or negatively, but they aren't products of mine. They aren't objects like that. And I'm only one of so many other influences and variables in their lives, and very rarely am I a central one. The only product I guess I can lay my hands on is my lesson plan book, but even that's abstracted. That lesson plan and that curriculum arc, they're not physical, they're not tangible products that I can call my own either. So who knows if that physical product is any good, those lesson plans. On their own, they're meaningless. Without practice and audience, they're empty and hollow abstractions too. I think a lot of people try to fill those product voids though. I sew, paint, play music, cook. A bunch of hobbies that create stuff. Something to show for my time, I guess. Something that's a unique expression of my particular creative energy. My husband does woodworking to escape the same kind of thing, the productlessness of his project management job as a producer's schedule building. It's why getting rid of things like home ec and woodshop in schools I think might actually be probably more incredibly harmful than we realize. Because what happens when you're no longer creating? Well, you still got the energy, and so you go the other route to express it. Destruction. Be that of things, or others, or the self. Maybe some of the characters in Point Counterpoint could benefit from some healthy hobbies. Ranapians manifest in his political cartoons. Everyone else does everything for jobs. I can't think of any other character who has a hobby. Maybe Walter and Eleanor's mom, Janet Bidlake. She gardens. But is that why a lot of the characters resort to destructive tendencies? Fortunately for us, though, Camus doesn't just simply point out the problem, but he does give a response to it as well. The problem, like he says, the pain is in the beginning. When we remember what was, what could be, and we have hope in something other than the now. That is the problem that Nick's highlighting in that final section of Gatsby, the hope in the unknown for those Dutch sailors, which he claims might be the last authentic time for that. For Gatsby, the hope is in the way it was, and a false sense of trying to recover the past in the future. It's putting hope in what isn't the now. Something other than the now. But consciousness of this habit of the mind helps us realize the folly of such a thought. You cannot return to the past in ways other than memory. They just aren't done. And we have no guarantee of things in the future, so we can't really put stock in that either. What we have, we have now. With consciousness, Camus claims, we can silence all the idols and make of fate a human matter by saying yes to our current situation and accepting it for what it is, and doing what it in the present calls for us to do. While it sounds pessimistic to people who hope for more ambitious, bigger things, well yeah, it would sound pessimistic because you would be the problem that Camus is highlighting. 
Otherwise, it's an incredibly optimistic philosophy. It means that disappointment and chance occurrences are basically powerless against our own mental capacity to choose to be happy. There is an important key issue here, and it lies in the issue of awareness, of consciousness. Without consciousness of this situation, Camus' Sisyphus might continue to be miserable or feel anxious without really knowing why. But the minute he's conscious, the tragedy begins. As he says, in the same way that the athlete of Kierkegaard's either-or is miserable the moment he realizes that he's bored, or his own methods for disseminating boredom don't work. The paradox, the moment for that standpoint, fails in a conscious moment and it requires a decision. Say no, and you end up in the demonic like Spandrel. Say yes, and you make the leap of faith. Even in Camus' myth here, there's still a leap of faith. Hope and faith aren't really the same thing, so we don't want to conflate that. Faith requires conscious choice, consciousness and thoughtful awareness of the moment, and faith in the power of the self to choose. As Camus says, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. The word is no accident. It's not can, should, or anything else. It's a necessity, a required must. There is nothing else to be, as the choice will somehow eventually get back to that route. He can say no, but eventually you'll get kind of tired of perpetuating your own misery, and if you're at it for all eternity, it's got to become a habit, right? There's nothing else. Why not enjoy it, then? You see a similar outcome with the Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day. He goes through all the motions of grief, variables of suicide, the manipulations, the sins, everything, all the destructive tendency. And then he gets bored with that, and gets bored of being bored. So then what's left? Creativity. That's what. It's hard to build, but is it, in a sense, inevitable? For Huxley, the conscious awareness is the key. While it might bring about some kind of short-term sorrow, it's the only way to progress past it. In his final novel, Island, which was published posthumously in 1963, Huxley basically builds a utopia. It's less of a novel than it is kind of a philosophical manifesto that's given some characters in a little bit of a setting, not really much in the way of a plot, in a way, it's a lot like Dante's Paradiso. You have a character from the fictional utopian island of Pala, who's a lot like Dante's Beatrice, who pulls a modern man, Will Farnaby, who's the book's Dante, through the society, teaching him about their ways and why they're successful. In it, Huxley provides what's called the Notes on What's What, which is the philosophical treatise of the society. It's a complicated one, but here are the notes compiled from fragments throughout the text. One. Nobody needs to go anywhere else. We are all, if we only knew it, already there. If I only knew who in fact I am, I should cease to behave as what I think I am. And if I stopped behaving as what I think I am, I should know who I am. What in fact I am, if only the manichae I think I am would allow me to know it, is the reconciliation of yes and no lived out in total acceptance and the blessed experience of not to. In religion, all words are dirty words. Anybody who gets eloquent about Buddha or God or Christ ought to have his mouth washed out with carbolic soap. Because his aspiration to perpetuate only the yes in every pair of opposites can never in the nature of things be realized, the insulated manichae I think I am condemns himself to endlessly repeated frustration, endlessly repeated conflicts with other aspiring and frustrated manichaeis. Conflict and frustrations. The theme of all history and almost all biography. 
I show you sorrow, said Buddha realistically. But he also showed the end of sorrow, self-knowledge, total acceptance, the blessed experience of not to. 2. Knowing who in fact we are results in good being, and good being results in the most appropriate kind of good doing. But good doing does not of itself result in good being. We can be virtuous without knowing who in fact we are. The beings who are merely good are not good beings, they are just pillars of society. Most pillars are their own Samsons. They hold up, but sooner or later they pull down. There has never been a society in which most good doing was the product of good being and therefore constantly appropriate. This does not mean that there will never be such a society or that we and Paula are fools for trying to call it into existence. 3. The Yogin and the Stoic Two righteous egos who achieve their very considerable results by pretending systematically to be somebody else. But it is not by pretending to be somebody else, even somebody supremely good and wise, that we can pass from insulated manichaehood to good being. Good being is knowing who in fact we are. And in order to know who in fact we are, we must first know, moment by moment, who we think we are and what this bad habit of thought compels us to feel and do. A moment of clear and complete knowledge of what we think we are but in fact are not puts a stop for the moment to the Manichaean charade. If we renew until they become a continuity these moments of knowledge of what we are not, we may find ourselves all of a sudden knowing who in fact we are. Concentration, abstract thinking, spiritual exercises, systematic exclusions in the realm of thought, asceticism and hedonism, Systematic exclusions in the realm of sensation, feeling, and action. But good being is in the knowledge of who in fact one is in relation to all experiences. So be aware. Aware in every context, at all times, and whatever creditable or discreditable, pleasant or unpleasant you may be doing or suffering. This is the only genuine yoga, the only spiritual exercise worth practicing. The more a man knows about individual objects, the more he knows about God. Translating Spinoza's language into ours, we can say, the more a man knows about himself in relation to every kind of experience, the greater his chance of suddenly, one fine morning, realizing who in fact he is, or rather, who, capital W, in fact, capital F, he, between quotation marks, is, capital I. St. John was right. In a blessedly speechless universe, the word was not only with God, it was God, as a something to be believed in. God is a projected symbol, a reified name. God equals, quote-unquote, God. Faith is something very different from belief. Belief is the systematic taking of unanalyzed words much too seriously. Paul's words, Muhammad's words, Mark's words, Hitler's words. People take them too seriously, and what happens? What happens is the senseless ambivalence of history. Sadism versus duty, or incomparably worse, sadism as duty. Devotion counterbalanced by organized paranoia. Sisters of charity selflessly tending the victims of their own churches, inquisitors, and crusaders. Faith, on the contrary, can never be taken too seriously, for faith is the empirically justified confidence in our capacity to know who in fact we are, to forget the belief-intoxicated manichae in good being. Give us this day our daily faith, but deliver us, dear God, from belief. 4. Me as I think I am, and me as I am in fact. Sorrow, in other words, and the end of sorrow. 
One third more or less of all sorrow that a person I think I am must endure is unavoidable. It is the sorrow inherent in the human condition, the price we pay for being sentient and self-conscious organisms, aspirants to liberation, but subject to the laws of nature and under orders to keep on marching through irreversible time, through a world entirely indifferent to our well-being, toward decrepitude and the certainty of death. The remaining two-thirds of sorrow is homemade, and so far as the universe is concerned, unnecessary. Patriotism is not enough. But neither is anything else. Science is not enough. Religion is not enough. Art is not enough. Politics and economics are not enough. Nor is duty, nor is love, nor is action, however disinterested, nor however sublime, is contemplation. Nothing short of everything will really do. And five. We cannot reason ourselves out of our basic irrationality. All we can do is learn the art of being irrational in a reasonable way. In Pella, after three generations of reform, there are no sheep-like flocks and no ecclesiastical good shepherds to shear and castrate. There are no bovine or swinish herds and no licensed drovers, royal or military, capitalistic or revolutionary, to brand, confine, and butcher. There are only voluntary associations of men and women on the road to full humanity. Tunes or pebbles, processes or substantial things. Tunes, answers Buddhism and modern science. Pebbles, says the classical philosophers of the West. Buddhism and modern science thinks of the world in terms of music. The image that comes to mind when one reads the philosophers of the West is a Byzantine mosaic, rigid, symmetrical, made up of millions of little squares of some stony material and firmly cemented into the walls of windowless basilica. The dancer's grace and forty years on her arthritis, both are functions of the skeleton. It is thanks to an inflexible framework of bones that the girl is able to do her pirouettes, thanks to the same bones, grown a little rusty, that the grandmother is condemned to a wheelchair. Analogously, the firm support of a culture is the prime condition of all individual originality and creativeness. It is also their principal enemy. The thing in whose absence we cannot possibly grow into a complete human being is, all too often, a thing that prevents us from the growing. A century of research on the moksha medicine has clearly shown that quite ordinary people are perfectly capable of having visionary or even fully liberating experiences. In this respect, the men and women who make and enjoy high culture are no better off than the lowbrows. High experience is perfectly compatible with low symbolic expression. The expressive symbols created by Palinese artists are no better than the expressive symbols created by artists elsewhere. Being the products of happiness and a sense of fulfillment, they are probably less moving, perhaps less satisfying aesthetically, than the tragic or compensatory symbols created by victims of frustration and ignorance, of tyranny, war, and guilt-fostering, crime-inciting superstitions. Palinese superiority does not lie in symbolic expression, but in which art which, though higher and far more valuable than all the rest, can yet be practiced by everyone. The art of adequately experiencing the art of being more intimately acquainted with all the worlds that as human beings we find ourselves inhabiting. Palinese culture is not to be judged as, for lack of better criterion, we judge other cultures. It is not to be judged by the accomplishments of a few gifted manipulators of artists or philosophic symbols. No, it is to be judged by what all the members of the community, the ordinary as well as the extraordinary, can and do experience in every contingency, and at each successive intersection of time and eternity. So much to unpack there. It's a dense little thing, isn't it? 
But it does echo a lot of the sentiments that Rampion makes sound good in point-counterpoint. It just goes a lot farther of a way to go past the ranting and complaining, but it actually gives us something actionable. In the book Island, Pella actually does the things that fit these ideas. They don't just simply point out the problems of modern living, which is all Rampion seems capable of doing. And even though characters like Philip admire him for being theory and practice, he really isn't. Otherwise, you could just espouse being an idiot machine eight hours a day. How do you, how do, you do that? Which honestly is convenient of a position for somebody like Rampion to hold, a man who lives off of his wife's wealth, who even Burlap in the early scenes when he's visiting him in the study to buy the paintings for the literary world, recognizes as kind of convenient. Rampion doesn't have to be an idiot machine. He's rich. Like Illich says about the rich, Rampion simply gets to be mawkish about the suffering of his inferiors. The suffering of the working class who have to work eight hours a day at menial tasks because the rich have given them no other options, politically, socially, economically, or philosophically. He's a hypocrite too, just like every single one of them. It's easy to tell others to be idiots and machines while you get to sit there in your cushy little study drawing pictures and not worrying about having to make money just to eat, just so that you can make fun of everyone else. He has no idea. And while his criticisms might be right, and they sound well and good, and they may have good intentions even, he can't even begin to prescribe this mindset meaningfully. It's actually kind of infuriating. And what's more infuriating is how people read the character of Rampion as being the guy who is right and has it figured out. He too is privileged, and he can stand there and spout all of this conscientiousness. Patriotism is not enough, but neither is anything else. Science is not enough, religion is not enough, art is not enough, politics and economics are not enough, nor is love, nor is duty, nor is action, however disinterested, nor however sublime is contemplation. Nothing short of everything will really do. It's my absolute favorite passage of Huxley right there. It sums it all up so poignantly. Island's treatise, The Notes on What's What, first recognizes the inherent duality of human nature. Borrowed from an ancient philosophy called Manichaeism, dualisms of the self and not-self within a person are described here by the notes, in which it's the duty of each person to abolish the not-self by finding who in fact one is. Eastern mysticism plays a major part of the notes. You emphasize here the Buddha nature, the Mahayana philosophies of compassion. Pala is characterized as an embodiment of non-dualistic theology, an ecological perspective, a strong emphasis on education and social conditioning. In order to properly assist in healthy, balanced living, the nation of Pella's institutions place a great emphasis on that ecological approach. This approach is demonstrated really well in their medical practices, where it's encompassing not just our Western idea of cure, but also kind of this revolutionary understanding of prevention. Their first step toward balanced living is to understand each individual. There's a very Sheldonian classification of personality and body type going on here. Uh, medical personnel on Pella assess each individual. They prescribe them ecological ways of maintaining personal balance relatively for themselves. Unlike Western medicinal practices the Pellanese criticize, the medical institutions of Ireland prevent imbalance, not only on the biological level, but also on psychological level, on a chemical level, physical level, emotional level, so on. Schools also follow a similar approach. Rather than just teaching core subjects as separate entities, the school system in Pella is integrated so that there's really not any extreme to be isolated. 
Children on the island are taught to integrate subjective experience and aesthetic understanding with objective truths and awareness of all the things. Uh, both the, the true, real moment experience as well as uh, all of the abstract idealisms that kind of happen in those naturalistic contexts. This integration is done by essentially taking the children away from just working on the abstract, taught dialectically, and then placing them in practical application. They're taught in the classroom and then they apply their knowledge to a real situation. It is, it's necessary that each individual be able to take their own theoretical knowledge and apply it practically in order to live a balanced life. On Palo, this awareness of living theoretically on their philosophies practically is reinforced by something of a power of suggestion. However, the suggestive awareness isn't really the same thing as the Pavlovian type conditioning you see in, or even the Hypnopedia in Brave New World. They're just conscious suggestions. Think uh, the awareness techniques used in yoga, reminders to be attentive to your breathing as you stretch into a pose. This awareness, which Huxley constantly emphasizes all over the book Island, is of central importance to the idea of applying theoretical knowledge to practical living. He advocates awareness and the phrases that stress its importance uh, as the solution to Rampion's lack of being able to describe that humanly. Um, when we make our statements, we follow them up with a list of operations that can be used for testing the validity of what we've been saying. Like Sisyphus, the characters of Huxley's Utopia can recognize their tendencies. They know themselves as unique individuals, and they serve a functional whole in the realm of human experience, and they take, don't just take drugs to get rid of it. They confront it. They deal with it. They incorporate it into their sum total of experience. They learn and adapt as a result of it prevention, and cure. Look at that. All in one. What Rampion is asking for in becoming idiots and machines is to effectively take something like Brave New World Soma, to bear it stoically, the smell of modernity, to hold your nose and ignore it, to go into a functional coma and be a drone while you do the job and then wake up in your leisure and be you, rather than, you know, just always being you. Always. So then the basic requirement in all of this is conscious awareness. It's implicitly advocated in all of these instances, but dealt with in drastically different ways. For Camus' myth, it's heading on the pain and saying yes to it, knowing it's a state of inevitability and making it your inevitability. Then you can be happy when you control over it. For Rampion, it's ignoring part of it in favor of the rest of it, but also realizing that in the time you do have, you have to be whole physical, intellectual, and spiritual. In Brave New World, it's taking a drug to dissipate the suffering and then living in the intervals. Consciousness is essentially kind of avoided here. The moment it occurs, we stifle it out with drugs. For Island, it's the yoga of life. Always consciously aware, always recognizing the source of suffering and the individual's subjective reaction to it, because that's where the suffering is. And the living and the feeling and the consciousness of reality, there isn't any suffering other than to serve experience to its fullness. It's necessity in an affirmation of our living. It is, in a way, a welcomed and fully realized part of experience. Consciousness is reaffirmed with every living moment. But how does one become conscious? I don't know how Huxley felt about the philosophies of German idealist Hegel, but I know I'm a pretty big fan. Hegel's Phenomenology of the Spirit is probably the most dense piece of philosophy I've ever read, and I've been through it, I think, twice now, completely, and I've read various sections of it at different times for different reasons, but I took a class on him for my master's. Uh, we had to read the piece, 
and I somehow read it in like a slightly more than 24 hour period for a paper that I wrote for the class. And that was intense. But I really enjoyed the work. Um, when I was first introduced to Hegel in my undergrad, my professor used the analogy of a seed of a tree to illuminate it. And it's pretty much stuck with me since. I'm sure it's also incredibly reductive and, you know, whatever, but it seems to work pretty well for my students so that they at least get the gist. In the seed is all the information to actualize the tree, but it's not yet the tree. In the same way that the tree is no longer the seed, but it contains in itself the whole unfolding process still. This is in essence the same kind of process that occurs with the notion of history, which Hegel also attributes to a kind of grand consciousness as history is understood, filtered, and mediated by consciousness, a collection of individual consciousnesses that comes to be the whole of consciousness itself. But this unfolding happens not just for the collective, but it also happens on a micro level with each individual consciousness. And Hegel names this process the dialectic. Often this is depicted as kind of a triangular model in which the individual starts from position A, or thesis, and is then confronted by a position not A or antithesis, and the resulting consciousness moves up to some kind of triangular, like, like I said, shape to not not A or synthesis. I'm not a huge fan of the terms. Uh, oftentimes my students see not not A and then assume the double negatives cancel out like they do in algebra, in which case the resulting movement is almost circular and we end up back again at original thesis A. But this isn't the case with the Hegelian dialectic. Not not A is not the same at all as A, even if it is so termed. Uh, I like to illustrate this in my class with the idea of a spring or a screw, in which case every circling back is actually a higher position. In the epistemology of disagreement, I liken this to the total evidence views of philosophers like Thomas Kelly. Great stuff, by the way. The position may not necessarily change in limited terminology, because that's how language works, um, but because there's a significant amount more experience, more evidence, phenomena, etc., it isn't at all the same view. It's deeper, more nuanced understanding. Both positions A and not A are sublated, not ignored, which means that we may see this as holding two contradictory perspectives at once. We've seen logic's answer to this, the law of non-contradiction. Hegel tried to write his own logic in response to this problem as he saw it. Unfortunately, though, his logic just hasn't stuck with us quite as readily as Aristotle's. But there are plenty of places where we've talked about the issue of contradiction. In fact, Kierkegaard's philosophy of the standpoints is a response directly to this notion. Contradiction is also important for Kierkegaard, hence the either-or. And his philosophies also prescribe emotion for that paradox. The difference, though, well, there are many. This is kind of a main one. Uh, the difference lies in where the end point is for each of those philosophers. For Kierkegaard, of course, it's faith in the absolute. For Hegel, it's idealism. Reality for him is rational, not super rational as it is in Kierkegaard. And so the dialectical motion through contradiction is itself a rational process of the unfolding of reason. So this dialectical movement is, in essence, the process of consciousness unfolding. The content is relatively open-ended here. But there are some important realizations that happen on a grand scale. For Hegel, there are a lot of threes. You already see that in thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. But this process happens a multiplicity of times. But there are three important unfoldings that happen. And these are developmental to some extent. I'm actually only going to cover two here, but know that they happen in this order, in this fashion. Uh, the first is the consciousness of objectivity. It begins first with thesis. 
sense certainty. Here, objects are apprehended. As much as possible, this is immediate, direct reception of sense experiences of a thing. As in, we experience the object, we utilize our five senses for it. Unfortunately, though, it's really kind of hard to talk about this particular act because we're already using language to talk about it in a way that makes it comprehension rather than apprehension. Since right now, here I am, you know, relying on words and conceptualizing for you. But think babies. Um, this is the image I try to use in my class. I don't know how successful it is, but here it is. Babies before language uh, and too much of the conceptualization. They're all about touch and sense perception and experiencing as immediately as possible the things around them. The most sensitive receptors at that age tend to be the ones in the mouth. So babies pretty much slobber all over everything. So there's your reason. Uh, if you take the object away from a baby, it's gone forever. This is why peekaboo is such a funny thing. They literally assume that your face is actually gone. Eventually, object permanence sets in, and then they start building concepts and all that. But for a while, this is about as good as I can get as a picture for sense certainty um, through the language here. So this doesn't last very long, especially not anymore. Uh, we're wiser, older, and unfortunately less able to have that kind of immediacy. Our brain takes over pretty much immediately as soon as we start naming the thing and the experience and building concepts and comprehension and trying to get some understanding of it. This is mostly relational. And it comes with the antithesis, perception. Here becomes the recognition of space. And this is where Hegel responds to the Kantian categories. This is where we can start categorizing. A particular thing is red. Redness itself becomes a universalized property that can be applied to other specific red things. And the more red things we see, the more universalized the concept red becomes. This synthesis is understanding. But note that it is, here at least, all about objective experience. This requires no immediate reflection on what is actually doing the experience. Me, really, right? So eventually, we come to recognize that we are, for a lack of less physical spatial terms, behind and perceiving and understanding. The object isn't us. We are not the object. We are an object, but spatial so, you know, separation exists between us and what we perceive, even as we're manipulating the object. So there becomes an awareness then of self in this process. I would say that this is in essence getting up and turning around in the cave to see the fire, but honestly, Plato's allegory doesn't really talk much about self-awareness in, in, in its aspects of this, in that dynamic. It's all the things in reality being perceived and understood, but at the base, immediate level of that image, there's very little to say about the subject awareness of the prisoner of himself as himself. He comes to understand things and the universality of concepts and all that, but this says nothing about the actions and limitations and the imposition of the subjective self on that perceiving and understanding. Hegel, though, goes that step further. And eventually it has to come to a recognition of itself as more than just another object of experience, but rather as a subject of experience, and even more so as a non-unique one among many other subjects with consciousness as well. And this gets sticky. So I'll use a story for an example here. Um, for a little while before I was done with my teaching credential and doing this whole full-time high school gig, I was a substitute teacher, like many people tend to be. So because money is nice, I was taking job subbing at pretty much every grade level, though I definitely tried to stay as much as possible in high school. Even that wasn't great, though, to be fair. Oh, middle school is the worst. Kids are mean. But I remember watching kindergartners and 
particular, this one event. So, as kindergarten tends to be, a lot of the day is play. There's plenty of unstructured time, and I could just watch and observe and, you know, see what they were doing and interacting with each other. I remember watching particularly two kids that were in the tricycle path. You know, like when you walk through the halls at an elementary school, the ones that are painted on the roads, you know, walkways and stuff with little arrows and things. So they're playing, and the whole idea is that they're supposed to take turns, right? So I'm on the other side of the playground, and I'm watching this whole scene roll down, and I saw this kid basically rip the bike from another kid's hands and then just ride off into the wind. So I know the first reaction is to think, wow, that kid's a bully, or if he isn't already, he's going to be. Uh, and luckily I was far enough away that I didn't have to respond to the whole situation because all that kind of confrontation makes me really anxious. Um, but we did have a parent volunteer that day who flagged down the kid and did a really good job, I think, of forcing him to confront the feeling that the other child was having as the unfortunate casualty of his action. I mean, who knows how many times this kid's done something like that to that kid or any other kid. But for whatever reason... Maybe it was because the other kid was his friend or something, I don't know. But for some reason, that time, the scolding worked. You could see on his face that he realized for probably the first time that what he'd done had actually affected another human being. Maybe it was the first time he realized that other moving animate objects in his world were more than just, you know, merely things. But like him, they were a subjective consciousness. Although, can you imagine that that phrase would be a part of that kid's lexicon? Subjective consciousness, like him. This kind of movement, recognition, is in essence the second phase of the Hegelian dialectic. It's actually one of the more famous parts of Hegel's philosophies called the master-slave dialectic. Yes, I know we've used the master-slave thing before. In fact, we talked about it through the philosophy of Nietzsche, who uses the same dynamic to discuss his moral philosophies, where the master is the ubermensch and the slave or herd morality tries to subvert it. He uses this dynamic as a way to get at power dynamics, Nietzsche does. And in a way, Hegel also recognizes that there's a struggle here. But Hegel's dynamic is a little bit more benevolent, or at least it is in the end. And it's all imagery anyway, so whatever. So here you've got the master's original position, which is to use the slave as an object of his own property. A sophisticated one, but an object nonetheless. This object, the slave, does his bidding. Let's say for the sake of argument, the slave picks wheat, which the master then sells, uh, keeps him, you know, his house supplied, his family fed, and profits turning. Cool. So in this dynamic, at least in the early stages, the slave sees himself as an object, or at least is conditioned to believe it on some level. You see this in literature as well. It's the same way that Jim and Huck Finn recognizes himself as worth the $800 reward, or the way in which Seath and Paul D and Beloved externalize a lot of their experiences as slaves. But eventually, the slave, through the original process of object consciousness that was outlined earlier, they come to recognize their own ability to manipulate objective reality and see that they're subject to consciousness as well. And at this point, he can then come to recognize elements of his own dynamic in the master-slave situation. In fact, through recognition of the situation, he realizes that he is actually the one in control of the product. It's the wheat that he picks. It's the objects he manipulates. And here we realize that the slave actually does have some considerable power in this dynamic. If the slave stops picking wheat, the master has nothing to sell. Thus, no way to sustain his house or himself. The master is as dependent on the situation as the slave is, and in fact, the master may less so. He has no object, nothing to manipulate, because the object he thinks he actually has is a subject, like him. Something that cannot be used as a means 
only an end in itself. So the slave rises up, revolts, and the master realizes his enslavement is the relationship too. But it comes with the paradox of the situation, with the mental work, the pain, and all the recognitions that have to occur. And in the end, for any power to return to either of them, a mutual understanding of the subjectivity of the consciousness of the other has to be realized. One's own subjectivity is further illuminated and deepened by this movement. We learn about ourselves through the reflections of others. There's identity discussion here for sure, and it's worth returning back to the content of our pre-episode of the podcast, back to the movie Moon. Sam Bell, alone on the moon, cannot recognize much about his own situation. His only experience with subjective consciousness comes artificially. You get the pre-recorded tapes that, I mean, those aren't happening live. There's no conversation feedback happening there. Or through some kind of false consciousness that he has with Gertie, who's, you know, AI. So it's only once we get the second Sam Bell and he awakens that there's any real reflection happening. So it's here that he realizes that he's a clone. Both of those individual consciousnesses have to come into that here, even though they're individual replications. And they go about investigating the objective truth of the experience. Important things about himself become clear to him in reflecting on the other. Specifically the version of Sam who's been on the moon for a while and only has two weeks left. By watching the impetuous anger, the quick actions of the newly awoken version of himself, Sam reflects on his tendency uh, to be that way himself. And then comes to recognize the truth behind a lot of the criticisms that his wife was making in the past. He realizes he's ill as well. And he's followed some thinking patterns there, many unconscious things that maybe now come to light. I mean, this is the basis of Fight Club as well. The need to externalize itself in order to truly reflect on the reality versus the desire to be something else, or better, or more. We do this on a day-to-day basis, by reflecting on what we see other people do, and then judging if we would do those things ourselves, or try to emulate behaviors that we want to have for ourselves, and then we watch other people exhibit them successfully. It's a basis of conscious awareness, a basis of metacognition. The importance of the other shines through yet again. We saw it in the cave, and we're seeing it here too. Philosophy doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is supported by Huxley's notes, his island pala, and inherently, though not immediately as clearly, by Philip in Point Counterpoint. There's totally a meta-inception-y thing happening in some of these later chapters, and particularly the ones that are titled From Philip's Notebook. In a way, these sections are fictionalized part of, of Huxley's brain breaking the fourth wall that very heavily handedly explain a lot of what he's trying to do in the construction of the novel, I think, at a meta level. But it also provides for us a way to see that dynamic of consciousness playing out in Philip in particular, whose intellect often objectifies and externalizes all experience into some kind of abstract intellectual commentary. But here we also get a better sense of the act of his mind, his own self-awareness, And we see that over the course of the novel, his movement has gone through this dialectic in a warped but kind of imperfect way. In his notebook, Philip expresses his intentions in a book he wants to write, which sounds remarkably like the one he's in. In earlier episodes, we went over the musicalization of fiction, the modulation of plots and ideas, the similars and dissimilars presented as points and counterpoints of characterization. We looked at his justification for the novel of ideas format. And in chapter 26, later... He also justifies the idea of it being a human zoology. We see a ton of preoccupation with Rampion, in particular, in Philip's notebooks, which is consistent with his thoughts throughout. 
which might suggest that he serves as the other in the dialectical model for Rampion, and on a greater level might also suggest that D.H. Lawrence served that same function for Huxley. He begins chapter 26 with recounting a conversation he had with Rampion, where Rampion talks about the way modern education will likely poison his own children, turning them into scientists and machinists and intellectuals. Note the tone of disgust. So this leads Philip to a reflection of his own. One of the hardest things to remember is that a man's merit in one sphere is no guarantee of the merit in another. Newton's mathematics don't prove his theology. Faraday was right about electricity, but not about Sandemanism. Plato wrote marvelously well, and that's why people still go on believing in his pernicious philosophy. Tolstoy was an excellent novelist, but that's no reason for regarding his ideas about morality as anything but detestable, or for feeling anything but contempt for his aesthetics, his sociology, and his religion. In the case of scientists and philosophers, this ineptitude outside their own line of business isn't surprising. Indeed, it's almost inevitable. For it's obvious that excessive development of the purely mental functions leads to atrophy of all the rest. It's interesting that he says this. In later chapters, in conversation with Rampion in the book's final scene at Sabisa's, Rampion's attacks ramp up on all of his interlocutors, and Philip is caught having to defend himself against the attacks for intellectualism. And then it gets kind of personal. Luckily, Philip is emotionally detached enough not to feel threatened. So, but he feels uneasy, and it's more about the limp, the physical disability he has that was left there by being trampled by a horse as a kid, uh, that really is the source of the unease in this intellectual attack. But he does defend, saying that his intellectualism is merely a hobby like golf. Not quite, but like golf. I won't play golf. Not doing it. Therefore, he recognizes, and I think even Rampion that offhandedly and unconsciously makes the comment, that his physical disability might play a role in that. As he says here, the atrophy is something else and the boosting of another faculty. Huxley's intellectualism, too, was heightened by his own disability, his blindness which left him unable to pursue some of the things he would have liked to pursue, but it also saved him, like Philip, from the physical and mental effects of frontline combat in the war. But Philip continually intellectually remarks on the defects of his thinking as well. He doesn't simply assert it's the superiority of the intellect, as Rampion seems to believe about him. As he says of Rampion in his notebook, the first is that he himself lives in a more satisfactory way than anyone I know. He lives more satisfactorily because he lives more realistically than other people. Rampion, it seems to me, takes into account all the facts, and then proceeds to make his way of living fit the facts, and doesn't try to compel the facts to fit in with a preconceived idea of the right way of living. This leads him to really interesting discussion of the defects of his own intellectual living. But to be fair, there are some backhanded self-compliments in here too. The course of every intellectual, if he pursues his journey long and unflinchingly enough, ends in the obvious, from which the non-intellectuals have never stirred. The theme was developed by Burlap in one of those squelchy emetic articles of his, and there's a good deal of truth in it, in spite of Burlap. Everything's in spite of Burlap. Many intellectuals, of course, don't get far enough into, to reach the obvious again. They remain stuck in a pathetic belief in rationalism and the absolute supremacy of mental values and the entirely conscious will. You've got to go further than the 19th century fellows, for example, as far at least as Protagoras and Pyrrho, before you get back to the obvious in which the non-intellectuals have always remained. And one must hasten to make it clear that these non-intellectuals 
aren't the modern carnal who read the picture papers and listen in at jazz and are preoccupied with making money and having the awful modern good time. No, no. One isn't paying a compliment to the hard-headed businessman or the lowbrow. For, in spite of their stupidity and tastelessness and vulgarity and infantility, they aren't the non-electuals I'm talking about. They take the main intellectualist axiom for granted that there is an intrinsic superiority in mental, conscious, voluntary life over physical, intuitive, instinctive, emotional life. The whole of modern civilization is based on the idea that specialized function which gives a man his place in society is more important than the whole man, or rather, is the whole man, all the rest being irrelevant or even positively harmful and detestable. The non-intellectuals I'm thinking of are very different beings, but the combined efforts of Plato and Aristotle, Jesus, Newton, and big business have turned their descendants into the modern bourgeoisie and proletariat. The obvious that the intellectual gets back to, if he goes far enough, isn't, of course, the same as the obvious of the non-intellectuals, for their obvious is life itself, and his recovered obvious is only the idea of that life. Not many can put flesh and blood on the idea and turn it into reality. The intellectuals who, like Rampion, don't have to return to the obvious, but have always believed in it and lived it, while at the same time leading the life of the spirit, are rarer still. There's something kind of dialectical about this movement from experiential, perceptual living to the intellect and then returning back to the obvious, as Philip calls it. It's really Hegelian. Philip finds the final movement back to the obvious, the experience now heightened by ideas, daunting, realizing that intellectual life is an easy cop-out, far easier than real living. As he says, I perceive now that the real charm of the intellectual life, the life devoted to erudition, to scientific research, to philosophy, to aesthetics, to criticism, is its easiness. It's the substitution of simple intellectual schemata for the complexities of reality. Some drown their sorrows in alcohol, but still more drown them in books and artistic dilettantism. I also perceive that the pursuit of truth is just a polite name for the intellectual's favorite pastime of substituting simple and therefore false abstractions for living complexities of reality. But seeking truth is much easier than learning the art of integral living. Which explains, though it doesn't justify, my continued and excessive indulgence in the vice of informative reading and abstract generalization. Shall I ever have the strength of mind to break myself of these indolent habits of intellectualism and devote my energies to the more serious and difficult task of living integrally? And even if I did try to break these habits, shouldn't I find that hereditary was at the bottom of it, and that I was congenitally incapable of living wholly and harmoniously? Well, he's taking the important step of self-reflection here, at least. Change only happens once one is aware. Uh, as the notes on what's what suggest, if one only knows who in fact one is, one should cease to behave as what he thinks he is. The problem here, though, is that Philip actually does, I think, know what he is. He's described it many times, and in a variety of different but importantly fundamental ways. His problem is actually what happens when he behaves otherwise, I think, when he actually attempts to live for anything other than the intellect. His attempted wooing of Molly, for example, God, that's terrible. When he tries to be rampion or anything in between, he fails miserably. So is he doing better justice to himself to stay the intellectual, the hereditary self that may be unable to live up to the living wholly and harmoniously that rampion seems to suggest is right, and Phil believes is right too? Would trying to be Rampion or like Rampion make, make it worse?
in a way it might actually be. If you read between the lines of the statement of the notes, Huxley's harmonious living must be in accord with the individual. There is a bit of relativism in that, if you think about it in kind of the same way that you would think about Aristotle's ethical concept of the golden mean. What is harmonious living for Philip will be different than what's harmonious living for you or for me, because our genetic and environmental circumstances differ. That's okay. If I only know who in fact I am, suggests that it's in proper self-recognition, subjective recognition, in a relation to all things, including others. Seems to me Philip is well on his way to this. He recognizes himself, and he recognizes others, and mostly rightly. He recognizes how others reflect on him, and he works to improve to some degree, though he may not be going about it all that correctly, but he might not also be wrong. He'd be less miserable, maybe, if he just simply accepted things are the way they are in fact are. His problem actually may be more external than internal. The rest of the characters need the self-realization here as well. I'm gonna have to think about it for a while. But this whole project has really forced me to have to rethink my thoughts originally on Philip, probably more than in past readings or any other character, and I'm not sure how or what to think about it just yet. He seems to me to be teetering on the brink of something, using Rampion as somewhat of a means of self-reflection in a lot of the same way that Tyler Durden becomes that for the narrator or the way that Second Sam Bell is like that for the first. Maybe it's a bias, though, because, like Philip, I also find obvious solace in intellectualism. It's my own hobby, it's a lot of my own, you know, career also, and the distraction from the obvious that harmonious living would require, or at least as Rampion suggests, I'm a little sympathetic to. So I think this is probably going to force me to reread Island, too. Maybe some more Stoicism, maybe some more Eastern philosophy while I'm at it. So many things we didn't get to today, and this is actually a pretty long episode, <laughs> so thanks for sticking with me. Uh, next week we got a look at Lucy's letters, which are just fun. <laughs> In the scene at Hyde Park, you've got Everard Webley, who we haven't even talked about yet, his whole thing with Eleanor, and all of a sudden we're at the end of the book. How the hell did that happen so quickly? Yikes. So there's plenty of resources again for this episode. If you have any questions and you want to discuss things further, hit up the official Twitter handle at fill in the details, or you can email actually too at fill in the details at gmail. Thanks for tuning in again today. I'm Stacy Cabrera, and this has been Fill in the Details.